hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, welcome to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody, and we're coming to you under some extraordinary circumstances. First of all, Please continue to uh, tune in and subscribe to our podcast. We greatly appreciate it. Anywhere you get your podcast from all the biggies, Apple and Amazon, etc. We're so grateful for you and we hope that you enjoyed our first episode with Dr. Sarah Kapnick and our second episode with Dr. Ian Jamanko and Dr. Julian Bremelo. Thank you so much for uh, continuing to tune in. We are so excited about the future of this podcast. But I mentioned we come to you here under some extraordinary circumstances. Usually we come to you the first Wednesday of every month, but we're doing something a little different here. Why? Because the 30th Severe Local Storms Conference recently wrapped up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and three of our brilliant meteorologists, Dr. Ian Jamanko, who I, whom I just mentioned, along with Sarah Dillingham, who's helped producing this podcast, as well as Christina Gropp, they sat down with weather enterprise industry leaders who were in attendance in this series of uh, interviews, they all highlight the progress that is being made in various parts of the enterprise from social science focused on improving severe weather messaging and response to advancements being made in observational field work and analysis methods of damage following extreme weather events. So we're giving you a series, a special series, an extraordinary series here from the SLS conference. And we're gonna start with our first episode from that conference. Dr. Mackenzie Krochak from the University of Oklahoma Institute for Policy Research and Analysis. So the question is this, do you know what to do when severe weather is approaching? What information do you need to receive and get proactive actions to take place? Dr. Krochak is a research scientist focused on answering these very questions. Dr. Krochak sits down with our science producer and meteorologist, Christina Grop to discuss how people respond to information shared in advance of severe weather events and how it was used to make decisions. Here's that interview. It's a special recording of the Disaster Discussions podcast. We're here in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the American Meteorological Society's Severe Local Storms Conference. 
And all this week, we have been hearing from some tremendous speakers about all of the research that ha is happening across the severe weather hazards and all of the work that's being done to better our community as a weather community so that we can really start to bend down the impacts of some of these hazards, understand them and reduce their impacts. So today I am joined by another fantastic speaker at the conference and one of my personal good friends, Dr. Mackenzie Krochak. Kenzie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the invite, this is exciting. Now, Kenzie, you are a research scientist mm -hmm. at the Cooperative Institute for Severe and High Impact Weather Research and Operations at the University of Oklahoma Institute for Public Policy Research and Analysis. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. I have a couple different uh, affiliations that really allow me to see the operational challenges of forecasting these severe weather hazards, as well as the societal impacts and how we might communicate them better. And that is such an important topic for our listeners today. And we're so excited to have you here to share some of that research with us because your work on the communication side is so much of, of putting what we know mm -hmm. into action. Yep. At the end of the day, all of the great work that we've talked about this week in the conference, if we can't get that information to people and change yep. the impact of the weather, it's, it's great work, but it really cannot live up to its full potential. Absolutely. So before we dive into your current work, tell us a little bit about your career path and how out of all the facets of meteorology, you landed in the severe weather communications piece. That's a really good question. Um, I think it comes down to a lot of really good people and good mentorship. Um, I got all my degrees in meteorology, but my focus in research and a lot of my classwork, especially in my PhD, was more related to social science methods and understanding not only how we study the atmosphere, but how we can study people too. Um, and so I had an internship at the National Severe Storms Laboratory between my junior, senior year of undergrad, which really got me into the idea that there is more to meteorology than just forecasting the weather. Um, and then I went to OU for my master's and PhD and my mentors were one of them in meteorology and one of them in public policy. And putting those two things together is really how I landed here. So like I said, it was probably a lot of luck, but also really good mentorship and understanding that there are so many different options within the meteorology field. Well, it's also a little bit of luck that at that summer internship, you met a classmate of mine from Penn State <laughs> yes. Meteorology and our paths crossed. Yes. And it's a, a great example of how interconnected this weather community absolutely, really is. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So tell us about the OU Institute for Public Policy Research and Analysis, mm -hmm. what the objectives of, of the group is. That's another good question. So if, if I say IPRA, it's the Institute for Public Policy Research and Analysis. So I might... IPRA. Uh, IPRA. Okay. Yes. IPRA. It's a lot easier to say that than the seven words that we've all put together. But um, so we're an interdisciplinary group of scientists. We actually have public policy scholars, communication professors, meteorologists, uh, psychologists, all working together in an institute of about 20 to 30 people uh, to really tackle what our directors like to call wicked problems. Um, That's and a great name. Yeah, we, we study wicked problems. It makes us sound really cool. Uh, but one of the main groups that we have is our weather and climate group, mm -hmm. and we study everything from how we might communicate the uh, hazards and impacts of climate change down to severe weather, hurricanes, all different hazards. Um, so it's a really unique group in that we can all sit down and have lunch together and talk about some of the projects we're interested in or currently working on and get so many different perspectives. Um, you know, something that I bring to the table for meteorology, someone else goes, oh, well, from the psychology standpoint of that, here's another idea. 
Uh, so it's a very lively group. Love the people I work with. I think, uh, again, the people make a big difference. So it's an interesting group for sure. Absolutely. Pe people are always such an important part of, of everything we do in, in all facets of our life. And again, why we want to figure out how weather impacts people yeah. and have weather impact them less yep. at the end of the day. So there have been a number of tremendous presentations from you and your colleagues at IPRA, um, if I get the acronym. Yes, that was it. Good job. Fantastic. <laughs> learn, learn a new acronym every day. Every day in this field, every day. Um, throughout the conference. But before we get to what you presented here, mm -hmm. I want to go back to some research that you presented at the AMS's annual meeting, I think it was earlier this year, that we really took notice about at yes. IBHS. Um, that because it aligns so well with what we talk about. And it, it was a focus on what information people want when. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Uh, I really went back and forth on what I wanted to present here, and that was the other option. So I love to talk about it. Um, it's one of our newer projects where we've used survey data from a nationally representative survey of US adults to study not only what information people want overall for, say, a severe weather event or a hurricane event, um, but how those information preferences might change as the event gets closer to happening. Because um, we know that people are looking for different things at different times, but nailing down what pieces of information that actually is was kind of the challenge. And so what we found, we looked at this across severe weather, winter weather, and the hurricane domain. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that, in general, the preferences are pretty similar. So people really want the chance that an event is going to happen and the location further out mm -hmm. from the event. And we really think this is people answering the question of, is it for me? Yeah. You know, if, if the chance is really low or if it's happening three states away, well, that's not something I need to worry about. Right. I've got 37,000 other things to worry about. If it is for me, okay, now it's going to stay on my mental checklist. And then as we get closer to the event, then things like severity, um, timing become mm -hmm. really important. So those details. Okay, it's for me. Now, how bad and when? Because the when also is really important. If it's during the school day, well, now I'm worried about my kids in a different building. Mm -hmm. If it's on the drive home, maybe we need to you know, leave early or later to avoid the event, for example. And then right before the event happens, we see in all three domains, uh, hazard domains, that really the protective actions and the impact information becomes more important. Mm -hmm. So it goes from, is it going to happen to me? What are the details? And then what should I do about it right before the event yeah. occurs? So seeing that pattern across all three hazard domains is really interesting. And I think there's a lot of implications for how we might communicate these events differently particularly when, you know, on social media, in a tweet, I have a few characters. Right. So I can start to prioritize what information I might put up at the top yeah. or what information I might include or not include. So a couple places I want to go with that, that research. <laughs> the protective actions piece, obviously at IBHS, that's a lot of what we research. Mm -hmm. What was the time period? I mean, you talked about like kind of getting right up before mm -hmm. the event. Mm -hmm. What kind of time scale are we looking at there? Hours, minutes, days? I mean... That's a great question. So um, we varied it a little bit based on the hazard mm -hmm. because, of course, severe weather timeframes are much shorter mm -hmm. than hurricane and winter weather domains. Um, so what we found is that like 15 minutes before the a severe weather event is when people, pretty much protective actions is what most people want. Mm -hmm. Okay, quick, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, in the hurricane and winter weather domains, it's about a day or a few hours beforehand. So that, especially in the hurricane domain, you know, depending on the severity of the storm, those protective actions, evacuating or, yeah. you know, boarding up your houses, those take a long time. Those take <laughs> days. Those yeah, don't those take happen a long time. Quickly. Exactly, exactly. So um, I think 
thinking about those, you know, right before the event is really different in these different hazard spaces. How do you, as a meteorological community and as, as a building science mm -hmm. community on the mm -hmm. IBHS side, we sometimes want people to want other information like that protective action sooner. Like we often talk about, you know, right before an event's not the time to make your severe weather plan. Right. How, do, how can we balance those two goals, knowing what people do want, but also knowing what we want them to want? Yeah, that's, so that's really difficult. And uh, one of the things I like to reiterate is that people have agency, and so <laughs> they get to choose for themselves. We can't yeah. make people do things. But one thing that I think would helps them, helps people kind of move along the decision-making process mm -hmm. is that personalization of the threat. So knowing that the threat is for me, um, and so Once we can check that box, then we're like, okay, it's for me. What do I do? Okay. Um, and so if, if you can really personalize it to not only town names, for example, but in the severe weather, this, my, my background's in severe weather. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times when you're talking about like tornado or hail, if you can say the target on Robinson mm -hmm. is currently being impacted right now, this neighborhood up here, you're next which is obviously very difficult to get right. that specific. Uh, but a lot of times people need to hear something that they recognize mm -hmm. as like, ooh, that's close, this is bad, yeah. um, before they're really gonna start deciding to take actions. Especially when some of these actions have like a big cost to them. Yeah. Um, staying home from work, a lot of people can't do that. Or if they can, boy, we better be right and there better be something coming. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance because we know people want a precision and accuracy in forecasting, especially in severe weather, that on the meteorological side, we can't always get. We just don't have yet. I mean, exactly. that's a lot of the talks this week have, have hit on that. We have learned so much, mm -hmm. but there is still so much to learn about these hazards that we're going to be busy for the years to come. <laughs> Job security. <laughs> There's that as well. Uh, but uh, while we figure that out, we've, we've got to help people yep. deal with the hazard today. And, and figure out what they can do. And, and understand some of the uncertainty. You know, like it, it may not be a perfect forecast, but right now it looks like you're going to be impacted. So how can we help people bring these messaging tactics into what they're talking about, whether that's others in the meteorological community, from broadcasters mm -hmm. to even emergency managers? How, how can we bring your research to them? You know, I think a lot of it is sharing it in the research community, but then also making sure that practitioners mm -hmm. <laughs> know that some of this research is going on. And so, you know, I wouldn't expect broadcast meteorologists, emergency managers to be downloading journal articles, for example. Yeah. You know, that's just not their space. Um, and so I think as a research community, we need to understand who's going to be most impacted by the work we're doing and really get out there ourselves. I, th I think that's part of my job. Yeah. If, if my research doesn't mean anything to the people that it should help, uh, then I'm kind of missing a step here. So lots of you know public outreach and uh, other domains besides academic conferences. Yeah. Although these are one of my favorites to go to too. They so. are great, but I will say it was Twitter where <laughs> yes. we first saw yes. um, your your comments on this work from the American Meteorological Society's annual meeting. So yes. see, there it is. There it is. Right. Getting right out there on social media. And getting, okay. So that was a great research project. But now let's let's shift gears a little bit and yeah. talk about the research that you presented here at the SLS conference mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that project. So that one is more related to severe thunderstorms and severe thunderstorm warnings. Uh, we know that severe thunderstorm warnings are the most common warning and convective hazards that are the most common warning that's issued. Uh, but we don't know a lot about how people respond mm -hmm. or um, even perceive their risk with these warnings. There's been a lot of work in the tornado warning domain, yeah. a lot less work in the severe weather domain. 
So we set out to really start understanding a baseline of what people think of these warnings. And so again, we're working with that same survey. We mm -hmm. uh, field it every year. And so we can start to kind of see how these trends are changing over the years. Okay. Uh, but this year was the first time that we tried a really in-depth experiment with severe thunderstorm warnings. And what we found is that um, people recognize that these warnings are important. Mm -hmm. Most people think that they're important. Most people plan to respond. Um, and one of the really interesting things that we found is that Overall, people say that the Weather Service, the National Weather Service, is issuing the correct amount of warnings. Um, so I think there's a lot of forecasters and researchers um, who think that, well, we just issue too many of these warnings and we should issue fewer of them. It's definitely a fear that you hear a lot about exactly. in our community, but maybe maybe that's an internal fear, a paranoia that we have that... That's what I'm wondering, because at least in our data set, we don't see that at all. It's maybe one of the clearest trends we've ever seen with one of our questions is over 80% of our respondents said... NWS is issuing the right amount. Now, I don't think this should be the end-all be-all on that yeah. question, um, but at least in our data, we're just not seeing that concern really come to fruition. So, What else are you seeing from, from that work? So we did an experiment where we varied, um, if anyone's ever gotten a wireless emergency alert on mm -hmm. their phone, and you know, yeah. it's come across your screen, and it's got like the yellow triangle. Usually at the grocery store when everyone's yeah, of course, go off right? at the same time. Yes, and it has that really scary siren sound. <laughs> so we very, we gave them a screenshot and we varied what information that included, mm -hmm. whether it had just information on the storm or if we included impact information or that protective action information. Um, and then we asked them a few questions about how concerned you'd be, would you respond, do you think your response would help? Um, and what we found is that at least in this experiment, the text that we include doesn't really change people's concern or response uh, rates very much, except for the people who get the fewest number of warnings per year. So, you know, the people who only get maybe a couple of these, one or maybe not even one a year, honestly. Interesting. Um, including that impact and action information is really important for those folks. Less so for the people, like I live in central Oklahoma and I get them multiple times a year, so... The text doesn't necessarily, text of the message doesn't necessarily change yeah. their perceptions very much. That kind of goes along with some of the, we've done some focus group research at IBHS where once people have experienced an event, their, their mindset changes. That's where we've seen a lot of adoption of the fortified program of people wanting to, okay, I've been through an event once, I don't want to go through it again, how can I make my home stronger? Absolutely. Once they've been through that event, their mindset seems to really shift. That's So we see that, I would say previous experience with a hazard is one of the strongest links that we see between um, people's concern over a hazard, people's plans to respond, or even um, the likelihood that they have a plan already in mm -hmm. place. Um, so it's really nice to know that you guys are seeing similar things. I always like when uh, completely different research sets are seeing the same things. It's yeah. good to know. And on, on a little bit of a different scale, where adopting yeah. the Fortified program is an investment in your home and when you're re-roofing, yes. yeah. whereas a severe thunderstorm warning is, where's my interior room? Yep. Yep. Th exactly. Those are, are very different scales, mm -hmm. but the, the, the patterns still yeah. seem to hold. Even in you know uh, winter weather uh, survey that we do or the hurricane survey that we do, we see similar things. Like, do you plan to respond to a future forecast or warning? It's usually increased if people have experienced a hazard before. And it also is usually related to how recent that experience has been. So. That, that recency bias. Yes. Yeah, for sure. How, how many 
How much confidence does this give you that people are taking action for severe thunderstorm warnings where a lot of the time the focus is put on mm -hmm. tornadoes, which tornadoes are a form of severe weather, oh, but yes. in our warning language and warning jargon, you might say, in mm -hmm. meteorology, mm -hmm. we, we split that hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I so I do think that there's probably more of a likelihood that people respond to a tornado warning than a severe thunderstorm warning. Uh, but I I think people respond more than what maybe meteorologists tend to think. You know, maybe okay. some of us think, well, people are just ignoring these warnings. I don't think that's the case. Um, but I do wonder, specifically with severe thunderstorm warnings, if maybe they're a little bit uh, generic. And mm -hmm. so seeing severe thunderstorm warning, people then have to go dig. Like, okay, for what? Is it hail? <laughs> is it wind? Or is it a lot of people think lightning is associated with these warnings? Um, Even so. heavy rain, I think you mentioned yes. in your presentation. Mm -hmm. So they have to go and dig for that extra, okay, so if you a thunderstorm warning, what's actually the hazard? Whereas a tornado warning, it's pretty obvious. It's in the name. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. exactly which hazard is. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of things that could make a storm severe, and your actions for hail might be a little bit different than wind. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It's. I think a lot of the times I'm just like, get my car in the garage. <laughs> but, but, you know, if it's hail and the wind isn't very bad, well, then I'm not so worried about some of my plants outside, you know. Um, or I am worried if it's hail <laughs> pulling them under the patio versus for wind, maybe that's less of a concern. So I agree. I think it's just the name of the warning might create an extra step for people in that decision-making process, which I don't know if that's what we want to do at the warning time scale. As much information as we can get them. As quickly as we can. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. What's, what's something interesting that you've learned throughout your, your research? What's like your favorite thing to talk about? Oh, you know, actually, well, right now, my recency bias <laughs> is that information timeline project. I really like talking about that. But I think one of the overarching things that uh, we're learning in general is that people know a lot about the weather. You know, they experience it every day. And this idea that, um, you know, people don't know anything or that we have to, like, dumb it down for people is really not the case. Now, please don't go talking about pressure perturbation forces and the tornado, but please don't do that. Um, but I think in general, we might need to give people a little bit more credit um, than what we sometimes do as meteorologists. Um, and so including some of that, why is the forecast hard today? You know, yeah. why could we have seen no tornadoes or if it happens really bad tornadoes? Including some of that why information may also be beneficial because then people have a little bit more trust in that forecast or a little bit more forgiving if it doesn't work out. That's a great point. We often go to the basics. Yes. And, and default down, but you can't escape weather. You you experience it every single day, and that's part of why I have always loved it. Yep, same. And after you experience enough of it, you you do start to learn. Now, the challenge I see there is people move. The weather you face yes. in Oklahoma, if you move to Florida, mm -hmm. if you weren't a meteorologist, oh, you would have a bit to learn. Even as a meteorologist. <laughs> the, the weather's different. Mm -hmm. And when folks are communicating about weather, you know that some of your audience has maybe lived in that area mm -hmm. for 30 years and other folks have lived there 30 days. Yes. And there are other challenges that everything presents more challenges. Oh, well, for sure. Uh, but that's actually a really good point. One of the research avenues that we're hoping to explore more in the future is uh, kind of these, this snowbird <laughs> migration of folks who live in the north during the summer and then come down south for the winter. As we see maybe later in later season hurricanes, 
you know, my parents are live in Minnesota. There is no way they would know what to do in a hurricane. Um, and so these folks who are moving to new places, either temporarily or permanently, mm -hmm. they don't have that previous experience. Um, they may not even know the product structure of some of these yeah. things that the weather service issues. So that's it's a, great a great point. point. Like snow squall warnings in the Northeast. Oh, yeah. 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 You, you can't have one of those in the Southeast, yeah. but if you were in Pennsylvania, you're likely to Huge. get one of those alerts and yeah. would you know what to do? There's so many different different actions we want people to know yeah. to take. And it's all about ingraining that in, in folks. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we did, all did fire drills as a kid. Yes. Every month at school, how can we get weather preparedness just as? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, and I think another great point is that, you know, we, with a lot of warning text, um, sometimes even in broadcasts, you know, we say, okay, there's a snow squall warning out and we stop there. It's like, well, what should people do? <laughs> there's yeah. a snow squall warning, pull off the road, you know, so people don't have to go search for, okay, what does a snow squall warning mean? Mm -hmm. uh, what are the impacts? And now what should I do about it? Mm -hmm. Right. If we kind of include a few more of those pieces of information in the direct message that we're sending, again, it might speed up that decision-making process a little bit, or just, you know, make it easier on people. Like, yeah. okay, pull off the road. I can do that. Great. Yeah. Yeah. All about making it easier for people to digest this information, digest Absolutely. the research that we've been talking about all week here and put it to practice to reduce the impact of weather. We love weather. We hate seeing it impact people's lives. Absolutely. So what advice would you have for risk communicators across weather, science, all the facets of risk communication? I think we've touched on a lot of them. Um, but in general, you know, while we don't need to go into every weed <laughs> of, <laughs> of the, what you're studying, include maybe a little bit more than um, what you might initially think that you should include, especially when talking to members of the public in the meteorology domain. People know about weather. Yeah. People are fascinated about the weather. Go ahead and talk about it. Um, it also humanizes you as a scientist. And uh, so I think that's important. And then if you're communicating about uh, especially short fuse weather risks, mm -hmm. like severe weather, for example, um, include that action information. We do a really good job with hazard. We do a really good job um, with severity and timing. Well, Timing maybe less so to an extent, but we do a really good job with a lot of pieces of information. But I think that one missing piece is often impact and action information. Tell people what they should do. That's that's sometimes the hardest thing to I know, know I because know. there are so many options. I know. It depends on where people are and what they're doing. What resources they have. Right, and then we know about all of the barriers that can stand between yes. them and taking that action. But as we can't expect them to take any actions if we don't present them with options. Exactly. Oh, and... Such a great point. I love the idea of options too. Uh, there's this new graphic that I've seen going around. Uh, if you get a tornado warning, where should you shelter? And instead of just giving one option, mm -hmm. like an underground shelter, there's this range of options in this graphic. Everything from um, a mobile home or under an overpass is really bad. Yes. To that underground shelter is perfect. But also in between, there are some really good options. I've like seen a well, that. A good, you know, a well-built house. I, I love that graphic Me as too. well because it it shows you the, the number of options, the spectrum, yes, yes. the spectrum of risk and the spectrum of sheltering. Mm -hmm. that we, we know that not everyone has a storm shelter in their house. Or if you're in a car, how do I know where the nearest shelter is? Right. I walk into a place and I think about if there was a tornado warning, <laughs> where would I shelter? How you know you're a meteorologist. <laughs> exactly. But I know that most people don't do that. So encouraging yeah. folks to think about especially when it's somewhere you spend a lot of time, yes. work, school, yes. grandma's house. Yes. Where are your tornado shelters in, in those areas that you know you're going to spend a lot of time mm -hmm. in? And there is a decent chance that at some point 
you could experience severe mm -hmm. weather while you're at that location. It's always good to have that in the back of your mind. Absolutely. But having uh, the ability to encourage people to do that ahead of time. <laughs> yes, that's that's ideal. <laughs> Figure this out not in the 15 minutes before you need to shelter. We know that they, they want to know the forecast more, but yes. as we give them that forecast, that little nudge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Here's the forecast for the next five days. Hey, there's this potential event. Right now, maybe go check on your, you know, severe weather kit that you might have in your shelter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Please don't you know, have five-year-old cat food for the cats in there. Although my cats would probably eat it. <laughs> you know, go and refresh those supplies. Make, make sure it's ready. Make sure those bike helmets are, are <laughs> yes. in the closet. If, yes. if that's your sheltering plan, those, those are the little things that you can do to make sure that you're ready to go. And yep. that still, I think, gives folks the information they want at that time scale. Yes. And the information that we'd like them to yes. want as well and, and start encouraging that preparedness action a little bit sooner. Absolutely. One of the, uh, it reminds me of a story, our uh, warning coordination meteorologist in Norman, Rick Smith, he one year in the beginning of spring tweeted, mm -hmm. talk about social media, tweeted a picture of his storm shelter and said, oh, I'm cleaning it out this weekend because it looks pretty bad next week. And evidently he got a number of calls from emergency managers saying, that was so helpful. You know, people were calling me, telling, telling me that I had just cleaned out my shelter and now a bunch more people were ready to go. It's funny what little things like that really have an impact. We spend so much time on some things, you know, making sure every last detail of a message is perfect when sometimes Something is it's a simple human action yep. that makes folks realize, hey, yeah. I should pay attention. If Rick is nervous, I should be nervous. Yeah. Oh, Interesting. That's a, a tremendous example. Well, as our, our time winds down, one last question I have for you. What are you looking forward to? What are you optimistic about as we look ahead the next decade? That's been the theme of this conference. What are you looking forward to as we improve the science communication of so much of this work that we've talked about? You know, I'm really, I'm really impressed. I'm really humbled. I'm really excited about so many in the physical science realm being excited and interested and really taking note of the social and behavioral sciences and recognizing that this is an important avenue. Um, and I think there's just a lot of traditional physical science meteorologists out there seeing how important this work is and seeing yeah. that, you know, unfortunately, I'm not just a meteorologist, I'm also a communicator and taking up that mantle and really being excited about it. So I'm excited just to, you know, get to have these conversations and get to see what uh, maybe small messaging improvements might make a big difference. That's, we seem to be on the cusp. Really. We really do. Yeah. We've made so much progress just in my short career, even so far in improving how we communicate these things just thinking about what's ahead after hearing everything. It's really going to be an interdisciplinary Absolutely. win if we can advance the communication of severe weather information and reduce the impact of severe weather. It's going to take all of us, but it's it also is. going to be a really big win yep. when we can get to that point. Absolutely. It's going, to, it's going to take everyone, but I think that's exciting because everyone should have a seat at the table uh, for these conversations. So I appreciate it. Kenzie, it has been absolutely fantastic to have you on Disaster Discussions. Thank you so much for taking time out of the conference to come up and, and chat with us and uh, for sharing some of your research really applicable to so much of what we talk about. So thank you. Thank you for the invite. It's been awesome. All right. Thanks for tuning in on this edition of Disaster Discussions. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast 
and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disaster Safety, and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.